This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. I'm your host, Eric Jones. Join us as we welcome Lisa Broden and examine Facebook, leapfrogging, and the dark side in Myanmar. Well, welcome. This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, and I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with me in studio is Lisa Bruton. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for uh, coming up. You're always an active participant in our uh, Center for Burma Studies and Center for Southeast Asian Studies, so thank you again. Um, You gave a really interesting talk to us today, uh, and the title was Social Media and Transition, Facebook, Leapfrogging, and the Dark Side in Myanmar. Very ominous title. (laughs) (laughs) Ominous, and yet... There's some hope too. So we can we can go back and talk about the origins of some of this, but give us a sense of uh, of uh, a thumbnail of of what you were looking at today. Yeah, I was basically looking kind of at the rapid increase in social media use in the country and kind of in historical context, um, and then some of the implications of that for the current transition period. And Myanmar is, uh, uh, Burma-Myanmar is cited as an early case for um, internet activism. It, it's, it's recent developments come of age with, with, with the internet. So um, I guess how is it uh, for the maybe larger body of scholarship that thinks about um, activism, how does, how does Myanmar fit in that template? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting kind of case study at the moment. Um, It certainly was an early example of what was at that time emerging as transnational internet activism. Um, And so it's especially um, interesting to see how uh, the early Burma democracy campaign of the 1990s was really internet driven. Um, and, And then... You know, looking at kind of the current situation, so that we had that going on under uh, the authoritarian military regime at the time, and now the situation is very different. And Myanmar sort of sits in a global context that is also very interesting. So we have, um, in the last couple of decades, a real significant change in the way international news is being produced, mm-hmm. where we have major transnational media outlets who are, you know, kind of cutting back on some of their investigative news or their foreign journalism and their foreign bureaus um, significantly, uh, which has increased the use of parachute journalists who don't have maybe as much background. Parachute journalists are journalists that kind of parachute in and do a story and leave. Right. um, Or also freelancers. Um, there are still some journalists who are familiar, you know, and have worked a long time in the region and whatever. But but really, in general, the the global media news production environment has shifted. So there's much more increased use of, you know, freelancers, of parachute journalists, and also then necessarily of folks on the ground helping out with that. So that kind of change in global news production sort of has been happening. And we also then see a very, very rapid increase in social media use in Myanmar really since 2011 when Facebook sort of became very popular to the current period. We have a rapid, rapid increase in social 
media use through the use of mobile phones and from zero to near 100 percent well in terms of mobile phone penetration yeah yeah. Yeah. again you know like we were just mentioning (laughs) we were talking in the discussion a lot of these statistics are very difficult because not only are the statistics different in different sources so they're saying different things about the you know for example the penetration of mobile phone usage in the country is 95 percent but or most recent figures are 108 percent um, and that, of course, is because people, many people have more than one SIM card. So it's really hard to know of, out of yeah. that 108 right. percentage of people who have SIM cards, how many, what actual percentage of the population has phones. And then of those, um, you know, how many people actually are using Internet uh, and Facebook and so on on those phones. So, so perhaps maybe for our listeners, give us a, give us a context for um, what, the, what the 90s and 2000s were like in, in Myanmar. In, in terms of the internet use, and so well, on. I guess I guess the the the, the political and social context uh, briefly that makes part of this internet intervention so interesting. Okay, yeah, well, Myanmar was completely controlled. Uh, censorship was very much, uh, very much a part of the media landscape. The uh, press scrutiny and registration division was an active pre-publication censorship bar- body that functioned in the nineties. Um, so the nineties uh, internet involvement in, in in terms of Burma, was really largely outside of the country. Um, a lot of folks in diaspora are working on the kind of Burma Free Burma campaign and so on. Burmanet listserv was another early um, use of the internet activism. Free Burma Coalition. Is- well, Free Burma Coalition was an activist coalition that had groups at uh, over a hundred universities in the United States and Europe, and their purpose was to really um, where uh, raise awareness of what was happening in the country and also call for divestment from right. companies that were doing business in Burma. BurmaNet Listserv was more like a, a just a communication tool. It was an aggregator, um, basically, you know, uh, somebody who would put together all the various uh, articles about the country, sources of information about the country into a kind of a daily listserv and send that out to anyone who subscribed to it. So this was a listserv that was used among government officials and aid workers and other uh, Burma watchers of various kinds. So Myanmar itself was this black box, but 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 uh, activists inside and outside the country were were getting the word out through this early internet. Yeah, portals. yeah, and the early internet kind of movement inside Burma was very much kind of obviously underground, working to kind of uh, intervene and subvert a lot of the restrictions against um, the use of the technologies inside the country. And then, of course, the internal activists and the external activists were developing networks, uh, and that's been happening for the last few decades. And that's actually something that I like to point out whenever I talk about the country that the transition that's currently going on is described very much as top-down and is seen as military instigated. And while I think that that most obvious examples of that, that is true, also I think it's really important to recognize the decades of work that have been put into developing mechanisms for civil society development in the country from outside and also the networks that have connected external activists and those in diaspora with those inside the country. These are all really important foundational developments that have made the current transition possible. Yeah, I mean, the so-called uh, um, top-down transition wouldn't, wouldn't be, there wouldn't be a transition if the bottom-up uh, forces and, and uh, uh, actors and activists uh, and masses had 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 lined up and and been working on this is yeah. I guess that that seems like an obvious omission of that 
of the top-down narrative, right? Yeah, I think that's really important. Yes, and that's uh, and it also that narrative also really marginalizes Burmese agency because mm-hmm. so much of what was happening was Burmese, you know, organized, developed, pro, you know, promoted, you know, with, with support from outsiders, no doubt, um, but you know, really important, you know, civil yeah. elements of civil society developed kind of under the radar during the military regime, and there, that that cha- change or that. Develop, those developments really aren't very recognized and they're very much marginalized by this discourse, which also suggests that then you know, the country needs some external savior to come in and help it, right? Yeah, right. That's a, that's a, common, that's a common trope. That, and, and maybe Burma or Cambodia uh, are, are often thrown into that, that kind of that agency and autonomy, that infantilization or, uh, uh, of, of them as um, passive victims of history rather than active agents right. of it. <laughs> Is, right, uh, and one good example of that, just to kind of interject here for a second, is the is the uh, global coverage of Aung San Suu Kyi, which, you know, recognized her as this democracy icon at the same time that it was kind of feminizing her ability to make any real political change in the country by kind of associating her with, um, you know, a, a d- uncle, you know, uncles in the military who had her back, or, you know, associating her with her father or her sons and her her husband right. who passed away. But, you know, and previous work I've done on this kind of looks at how that feminizing of the country really promoted that trope of, you know, external, the need for external intervention to help, you know, free the fragile democracy of Myanmar, which is personified by this, you know, fragile icon of democracy. Which is a callback, of course, to an old colonial trope of of masculinity in in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and it was used as a justification for the whole colonial enterprise, largely. You know. Right, these people can't take care of themselves, and, and they mm-hmm. don't—they don't revere their women, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and very much built on a kind of on very gendered discourse. Yeah, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. I mean, do you think the um, the turning points in in the is the uh, is it wrong to see the the saffron revolution in two thousand seven as as the as the moment this this all changes in Myanmar uh, and this maybe the cyclone the year after, um, uh, is that is that uh, is that an accurate and does that does that um, f- what happens to social media um, over that t- over that time frame of these of these transitions? Yeah, um, I don't know if it was a pivotal. I mean, it certainly was a key moment in a, a series of events that sort of promoted the development of an active and um, unified underground movement, um, and also the development of civil society in the country. So the Saffron Revolution was very important in terms of the media landscape in that that was the first time when the real connections between the internal media landscape or media actors the internal folks inside the country and those working outside the country and their networks that had been developed for some time this became clear because the folks inside were working very hard despite the censorship of the government and the government's attempt to shut down first specific sites on the internet and then the entire internet um, as a response to the 2007 Saffron uprisings. So it was the first time we saw real active engagement of these two, you know, of the internal and external elements of the network kind of working together to really pull information out of the country. And then a lot of the exile media journalists, the most prominent ones, so we're talking about, uh, you know, um, Ongza of the Irrawaddy and um, 
uh, So Mien uh, of Mizima and uh, Kim Mong Win and HN9 of de- uh, the D- what's now called the DVB, the Multimedia Group, which was the Democratic Voice of Burma prior to its move back into the country. So these folks who were in exile at the time became kind of international pundits. They kind of took on this new role. So that that also really elevated the reputation of the exile media among international media um, folks um, and and made it really clear that there was this sort of network inside and exi- outside and that, that, that if they wanted information about what was really happening in the country, they had to go to these folks on the outside who had connections inside, and that's how the information was getting out. So that was really important. The following year, Cyclone Nargus was is cited very much in the literature and by a lot of civil society actors as a galvanizing moment for civil society in the country. Because what happened in, after Cyclone Nargus is that the government, as, it, as an effort to reduce the blowback against um, its its own actions and to downplay the extent of the disaster and its inability to really respond appropriately, kind of shut off international access to the area. So journalists were not allowed to go, and a lot of the aid that was being offered for the Cyclone Nargis victims, which is, the, by the way, it was the hugest natural disaster in, like, in the country's written history. Oh. So this was huge, and, you know, displaced millions, of lots and lots of, you know, I mean, just huge destruction. And, and the government basically shut the doors to international aid efforts, at least at first, for quite some time. Um, so what happened as a result of that was that the media folks uh, who wanted to get information out of the area and those folks who wanted to help the victims, so bur- the sort of you know, early bur- um, development of civil society in the country, those folks who, who were developing these networks already kind of went down there and really civil society was really much, very much galvanized at that time because the government was not stepping in and was not doing the job to help the victims of the of Cyclonorgus. So those those two years were very key developments in, um, you know, the ongoing effort to diversify, democratize, um, diversify the media landscape, democratize the country, and so on, develop civil society so that it could be a bulwark against, you know, official yeah. power. So not to not to give away any spoilers, but the the it's it's kind of an open Wild West uh, internet uh, scape now in um in Myanmar, but if you think about this this moment in the late two thousands, where they're they're shutting things down, exercising control, I, I was uh, thinking about recently vi- uh, visit to China and their their quite successful ability um, to to control and manage um, the folks' access to citizens' access to to what they do and do not want them to see. Um, I mean, I have my ideas of why why that might be different in in Myanmar, but. Why do you think it's different? The 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 the, 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 the I guess the failure, quote unquote, to 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 um, control information on the internet. Yeah, well, first of all, I think that the military regime was clueless in, in, as far as how it worked, um, really, and I, you know. The idea that you mean they they, they, they underestimated oh, or completely. or also, yeah they underestimated and they did not first of all they underestimated the extent to which stuff was happening online and organizing was going on online they did not understand that and I also don't think they understood the extent to which you know it's the tool was set up explicitly to prevent right any kind of centralized control it is built into the infrastructure of the technology and I think that is what they did not understand and probably still don't. 
you know, I think they're, uh, you know, and this is true not just in Myanmar. This is true in the United States as well. The United States government, some of the more senior, you know, uh, senators really have this very old-fashioned idea that they're going to be able to, like, control what people say on the Internet. And it just is so... Um, it just represents a real misunderstanding of how the technology functions. So I think that that was definitely uh, a play in, in the beginning there. Um, you know, and I think that the then the recognition that they can't really control that, um, mm. now it's sort of like the strategy um, of censorship. So the pre-publication censorship board was abolished in 2012. And um, so you didn't have to get permission. No longer required to submit your print publications or whatever your your media um, in advance to. It's actually mostly print. It was print uh, publications that this affected mostly. So yes, um, no requirement uh, and films, of course, so, uh, but no requirement uh, um, now to submit. Uh, media, you know, journals, mm -hmm. uh, daily newspapers, weekly journals, um, monthly magazines, those kinds of things no, no longer uh, um, are required to be pre-censored. Uh, but what that means is, and of course... So, so everything's fine then. <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> there have to be new strategies, right? There have to be new strategies of control. And Myanmar has followed in very familiar footsteps of using defamation lawsuits as a way to control journalists and other media makers. So what used to be a very clear indication of what was and was not permitted, and, you know, uh -huh. if it wasn't clear, it became clear before, you know... <laughs> before it ever went to print. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. Now, the, now it's much muddier, much, much grayer, and journalists don't know exactly how far they can push things. And, and defamation suits can be expensive. They can be... Time-consuming. That that not knowing is a is is a very powerful, maybe even more so than the very specific prohibitions on what can be said, because that that uh, unknowability, uh, you you might you might question things that you shouldn't question, or or the 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 psychological effect that that might have on uh, uh, contributors. I'm guessing is is huge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because they don't know, you know, whether they're going to be, you know, seen as causing, you know, social unrest or immoral, you know, yeah. or something that might have been said a year ago now is suddenly like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting to note that most of the defamation cases have been brought by government, government ministries and so on, and the military. So, you know, um, <laughs> this is, is the law set up for for def defaming individuals or or, or or causing causing public disturbance? Yeah, primarily it? <laughs> it's it's defaming individuals. Yes. OK. Uh -huh. um, I can actually if you give me a moment here, I can read, I can read you the law. One of the most commonly used tools to silence uh, speech that's critical of the government in the country has been uh, Myanmar's telecommunications law, and specifically Article 66D of this law. So it's been used to arrest journalists and other folks, any just normal citizens posting to Facebook um, who have faced different things, fines, assaults, uh, trials, jail time for what is seen as Defamation. So the article states that anyone found guilty of extorting, coercing, restraining wrongfully, defaming, disturbing, 
causing undue influence or threatening any person by using any telecommunications network shall be punished with a maximum of three years in prison, a fine, or both. So it's been used quite a bit. And um, uh, surprisingly enough, way more under the current National League for Democracy-led government, the NLD-led government, than under the quasi-civilian Thane-Sane regime, which is its immediate predecessor. So. And, and it was in place then as well? Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I would not have guessed that. Mm. Yes, it's been used more often. And so, yes, uh-huh, since it's since it's yeah in place, it's been used more often by the NLD. And the NLD, I mean, it's now as of early this month, which is November 2017, there are 101 cases that have been, um, uh, you know, where people have been arrested under this under this law. So That's a lot. yeah, it's a lot. Are are the um, are the penalties? Um, Jail time, fine, or is the real penalty um, an ensnared endlessly in uh, uh, a lawsuit? All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the particular case, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, but that's that's a that's a obviously legal strategy of the powerful is to you know that the 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 your capacity is much greater than theirs to endure. Um, uh, you know the. Time, the time and energy it takes to be involved in this. So I guess exactly. that's the, the media outlets must pr- maybe self censor and. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think they're going to admit that, but yes, I think that that is definitely. Uh, how could they not? Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. How could they not do that in the in that sort of situation? Media outlets, so editors, but also journalists themselves, right? Have have these been used um, uh, for for domestic or foreign correspondence as well? Um. That's a good question. I mean, it's primarily it's been used on the Burmese. Um, okay. There are exceptions. There are some examples, um, but they're rare. And really, it's uh, it's not more, you know, it's like a slap on the wrist kind of thing. It's not. Um, the real threat is for local journalists. How are how are Burmese using the internet? So they're uh, they're going they're through their phones and 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 uh, are they using it through apps? Are they using it through browsers? What's the uh, uh, what is their access point? Yeah, <clears throat> well, it depends on who we're talking about, of course. So so it's tech savvy kind of techie people who are using a whole bunch of stuff. But I would say that not just in Myanmar but across Southeast Asia, Facebook is by far the most popular social media site. Um, and so a lot of folks, um, in Myanmar and especially in the rural areas, um, kind of also almost see the internet as Facebook, um, because a lot of, in the rural areas, a lot of folks, you know, they don't have, they're basically buying cell phones. They go into a place, they've heard of Facebook, they want Facebook. So the local phone shops, which have really arisen in the last few years in rural areas as a direct result of the decrease, the rapid decrease in the cost of SIM cards. So we have a rapid decrease in the cost of SIM cards, a rapid increase in uh, mobile phone usage in rural areas. But in these areas, you know, people don't have, most people don't use email. Most people don't use credit cards. In many villages, there still is no electricity. 
um, or running water. So you have really creative ways. <laughs> so you have these villages where there are villagers who don't have running water or electricity, but they have 3G cell phone service. <laughs> and they, they're, they're connected <laughs> to the Internet. So they're using, like, USB cables connected to uh, car batteries to charge oh, their wow. phones. And they are... And, and the internet shops that kind of ero- arose in the with the rapid decrease in the cost of SIM cards, basically, because people don't have their own emails, a lot of them they don't use internet, uh, so they don't use credit cards. So people use prepaid phone cards, and then they um, they a lot of times they they just buy a phone with with a, a Facebook account already set up on it, so they don't even necessarily know their login information. It's just pre organized by the phone. By yeah, the, and by the phone shop because they know people don't have you know emails. Some of our listeners who haven't used maybe the internet uh, abroad might not know it. It's it's set up can be set up quite differently, and and to the extent where you're, um, you're paying for uh, uh, data, you know, by the penny, and and with the exception of maybe certain um, certain apps, Twitter or Facebook, uh, a cell phone company might promote. Uh, those are free. Mm-hmm. You can use you can use as much Facebook as you want for free under our uh, plan. Yeah, and th- and then the rest you know you have to pay for anything else you access. So yeah, and that's a specific strategy, especially um, Myanmar Post and Telegraph uh, and uh, MPT, and also um, uh, not Oredo, the other one that they were Telenor. Sorry. That's a specific strategy used by the Myanmar Post and Telegraph, uh, which is the was a, for a long time the monopoly holder over internet uh, service providing. Um, but now, um, Orido and Telenor are two other um, uh, tele- telecommunications companies that have been uh, basically <laughs> their introduction into the market is what has decreased the cost of SIM cards and increased the use in social media. Um, and uh, both Telenor and MPT offer Facebook usage for free for their subscribers. So yeah, it's a specific strategy to gain subscribers. How how rapid has been the um, the ascent of of internet cell phone use in in Myanmar? Yeah, so we've seen a really rapid increase um, in social media use over the last few years. So. In 2009, SIM cards cost about two thousand dollars, and only about one percent of the Burmese population had cell phones. So. That was not that long ago. Then it sort of kind of increased over the next couple of years, but really in 2014, it rapidly increased because Telenor and Uredu, the two private ventures who were given telecommunications licenses in the country, entered the market. They were provided, they were given the licenses in 2013 and really entered the market uh, substantially in 2014. So in 2014, we saw a really rapid increase. So by 2015, um, about 50% of the population mid-year had a phone um, in the country. So wow. this went, yeah, so from 2009 to 2015, that's an immediate increase. And then in the last couple of years, it's increased, you know, it's doubled. So we have nine, now what is 108% of the population has access to a phone, right? So again, those statistics are tricky because we know that, you know, People have more than sure. one SIM card. So but it, but it's very high. It is like, very high. Yeah. Is it and it rapid, very rapid increase, right? And a lot of that in the in the rural areas. So yeah, that seems. Um, I guess the uh, not that not that the West has has had a, a, a rational, reasonable um, uh, discussion about what that means for social interactions for. Um, 
for privacy, uh, it's, you know, the, these, these questions that arise, um, that's, that's a lot to, um, and, and, and we might, we might add that, that it's not just that, uh, Burma itself is, was coming out of a deep, deep, um, uh, developmental hole and, um, uh, a lot is happening at once, and so this is this is this is on top of it. Are there uh, are there the same discourses around cell phone cell phone use by the old via the young? Are they they are they just as quick early adopters as the you know? There's there doesn't seem to be this generational aspect. If everyone has a cell phone, all suddenly. Yeah, although I think there is definitely cultural difference. There are definitely yeah. cultural differences between those who you know are kind of grew up in our. Um, very proud of the high degree of literacy in the country and kind of very proud of the history of kind of reading and that kind of thing. And a lot of the sort of, you know, rapid fire, you know, uh, Twitter, quick, you know, soundbite. Dumbing down. Soundbiteization of the, mm-hmm. yeah, that's caused some um, dismay, I think, among some of the older generation for sure. Um, they could be president of the United States. <laughs> keep at it. Yeah. There are some other real concerns, though. So, for example, like a really rapid increase in social, you know, social uh, networking and so on um, basically means that people are also providing information. um, And there's not very much in the way of discussion around privacy issues and concerns around privacy, um, how data is being collected and used. These are really important questions that are really being addressed by some folks, but they're not part yeah. of the main mainstream discussion at this point, and that there's some real concerns about that. And obviously, hate speech online is also a huge problem, um, along with, you know, discussions about how to kind of regulate that or monitor that or fix that. So we have a very recent, um, on Wednesday of this week, so this was November 9th of 2017, uh, the lower house of Myanmar's parliament approved a motion to set up a body to monitor uh, religious hate speech online and also to curb the spread of disinformation. So this is something that has to be really carefully dealt with because... This, yeah, so the translate issue, that for our listeners. Like, what is what is really going on there? Well, it's, um, you know, I guess the, it comes back to that age-old age old issue is can you really censor speech? Is that the best way to curb hate speech? Um how do we define hate speech? And, uh, you know, I speak as a U.S. citizen in, in a country that really regulates hate speech very differently than most of the other, you know, developed industrialized nations of the world. Yeah. Um, where we really don't recognize hate speech. Uh, uh, we don't, we... So compared to like Germany or... Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, but, you know, so what does that mean? I mean, um, there is more regulation of that kind of speech in other countries. Um, and so in the United States, we have a kind of a knee-jerk First Amendment response to almost mm-hmm. any kind of censorship issue. So it's hard to say, you know, but I think that, that very much, you know, for example, the, the part of their proposal is to register SIM cards and register Facebook users um, and take legal action against those who spread false news. So this this potentially could be a very, very slippery slope, depending on how it's handled, of course, right? Um, and but it's I'm sure of immediate concern to any um, me, I know it is a concern to media activists and advocates in the country right now. Um, how do you go about handling something like that? So an alternate way that's been um, I think in, in some ways very effective is is the use of kind of 
anti-hate speech campaigns by by many of Myanmar's kind of um, internet community organizations themselves. So the Myanmar Internet Development Organization and Pandia, two kind of advocacy organizations that work in the online kind of environment, um, very much interested and concerned with um, responding to hate speech by using... Uh, te- you know, counteracting hate speech messages by challenging them online, teaching people how to respond, and really, really developing kind of the what's really, I think, a beginning media literacy sort of training um, and a recognition of the need for media lit- literacy training among among the Burmese. So, um, religious uh, religious conflict in in Burma for many on the outside. Uh, screams loudly the the Rohingya and the 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 conflict is that law must be related right or isn't is it not uh, uh, against um the uh the largely muslim population uh who are yeah. uh facing some serious uh conflict in um Rakhine state is that is that law? Is it? Is it connected to that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. That's concern for a lot of folks. Is the way that hate speech has really arisen since the outbreak of violence against the Rohingya Muslim in the in, in the country uh, starting in 2012? Um, it's been gaining a lot of international attention, and so because of the international attention and the way that this has really affected Myanmar's international status in a sense, with a lot of people kind of condemning Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD-led government for not responding appropriately. Um, Yeah, very interesting sort of um, developments in terms of what this means. So could could Rohingya use this law to defend themselves? um, The the, the speech against them? could 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 it protect them? Well, it's right now it's just a proposal to establish a body. So they're not actually talking about okay. a law. Um, and it, it remains to be seen exactly how how they'll be using this. Um, but I'm sure that kind of regulation can be used for good or ill, <laughs> you know, like any regulation in some right. sense. Could you, you see some of the discourse the, uh, that the Rohingya themselves are, are, are an attack on Buddhism? And so, you you know, the, the cynic in me says uh, a body like that might be assembled to defend um, the the majority Absolutely, uh, absolutely. And what we have seen in Myanmar, which is very disturbing, is a rise of really ethno-nationalism around Rohingya, around Ro- identifying as Rohingya as the other. And I think, you know, in the literature about transition, there's a discussion of a concept called path dependency, which is the idea that, you know, the patterns, cultural patterns that were developed under a military dictatorship don't go away immediately just because laws change. Yeah. And that really you have sort of similar approaches to information, to legal controls and so on by an incoming administration. And I think we've seen lots of evidence of this. The fact that the defamation cases have increased substantially under the NLD leadership, for example, um, the fact that they're not really using state-run media in any way that's significantly different from the way the military regime did. They're very much still focused on, um, you know, the the daily activities of the NLD leadership and what who's doing what and where they're going and where they're developing things and so on, the proposals and so on. So one example that I talked about in my talk this morning is the issue of Ukoni, who was the Muslim leader. He was an NLD consultant working on changing the 2008 constitution. 
um, to try to allow Aung San Suu Kyi to become elected president. Um, he's the longtime consultant with the National League for Democracy, and he was assassinated in January of 2017 at the Yangon International Airport. And what was really immediately obvious to folks looking at the media was that the private media sector, you know, splashed these events, the assassination of Ukoni over the front page, big headlines, pictures, and so on, and the state-run media did not. And uh-huh. they actually um, you know, relegated the article to several pages into their state-run media, and it was downplayed very much. And so this is a really interesting indication of you know, this idea that you know, cultural patterns don't change. One thing that's really kind of interesting about this whole Rohingya situation is that this rise in sort of um, uh, nationalism inside the country has had a direct impact on the media landscape, which is that many of the Burmese media have been highly critical of international media and the way they have covered the situation. So they... and. Shockingly enough, a lot of these critiques come from people who were former activists and opposition folks who set up opposition media um, yeah. who are now back inside the country and are now themselves kind of playing into this nationalistic, nationalistic sorts of discourse. So the critique, for example, that international media is too focused on the human rights side of the story or they are not covering the... Um, Rakhine victims of the uh-huh. of the violence and so on. Some of this is in some ways justified because the international media and I've done a fair amount of research on the way that the international media portrays the situation in very simplistic black and white terms, which does very little to actually help reconciliation within the communities that are being yeah. directly affected. So some of that critique is valid. Emphasized by parachute journalism that maybe just like you don't. Exactly. People who don't come in. There's a well-worn path around, you know, the same sorts of people who have the ability to help foreign journalists. And, and uh, you know, they often take people to interview the same people and see the same sites and so on. And that, those things are a problem. You know, the ways that global journalism has changed and the, the pressures that this puts on journalists and the constraints that journalists face in covering this situation are extreme and they're they're make it very difficult but but there definitely has been a kind of Burmese media kind of coalescence um, and a schism now between kind of Burmese media and a critique of international media and it's having some real impacts on relationships between people inside uh, inside the country who are working together very much, uh, have been for, in many cases, for decades. Who would have been standing arm in arm exactly. uh, a few years ago. Yeah. It's, it's, we have a lot of students from Myanmar who come to, uh, through NIU, and um, I've noticed uh, recently that it's, I mean, I guess confusion would be one way to put it in, in the sense that if you take a leader like Aung San Suu Kyi, who is, who is um, you know, has been lionized as for, for female Gandhi uh, level, and for many of them who, who were not happy with the government, she was a, uh, was a, was a real of, of savior of the nation. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly those same people are, um, have very 
mean things to say about her and are that, you know, who, who may have been big supporters, uh, the foreign press or others, uh, suddenly it, it, uh, it, it can't be easy. You know, there are yeah. the, 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 the kind of, there aren't maybe many heroes in this story and she seemed like one of them. And then something like this, yeah throws that into question, yeah. uh, it can't be easy for a, a young Burmese activist. Border Affairs, Border Affairs and the Ministry of Defense. So, and any constitutional change requires a 75% vote. So, that, you know, without military yeah. support, they're not, there's really very little opportunity to make huge change. And so, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi is in a difficult situation. <laughs> On the other hand, the fact that she's the democracy icon would sort of suggest that she should say something about what the United Nations has termed a clear case of ethnic cleansing. And she herself has come out saying that this is an exaggeration of what's happening in the country. So... From, I certainly understand international criticism of her. Um, I also understand why there's a resistance against that. Many of the Burmese activists and journalists that I've spoken to have said, why is it that international media is focusing on Aung San Suu Kyi's role in this rather than the military? The military is the one attacking the villages. They're the ones involved or have been accused of being involved in the anti-Rohingya violence. And so, and with many, many eyewitness accounts, I might add, and so why is the military not the target of international media coverage, right? And I think that that's a valid point to an extent. Although, as a democracy icon, you know, one would expect that she would say something. But she's in a very tough position because she still does have immense um, influence in the country, but she's also in a very tough spot politically in terms of making a move and what that's going to mean. Yeah, the, it wouldn't take much... Uh constitutionally or uh procedurally to to put Myanmar back in and now what you know would the would the soci- society stand for that I don't I don't you know I don't that's, think an- so. that's another question <laughs> probably not but we didn't think so either earlier so yeah. uh yeah no that's an int- well, we've come we've come a long ways since the uh new light of Myanmar do you miss the new light of Myanmar well the, I think <laughs> the new light of Myanmar yes I mean it's it's different in some ways, but in many ways it's similar, you know, unfortunately, in terms of the way that the, the, the gov- current government is using the state-run media, it's not that different. Right. I guess they have a bigger megaphone. Uh, or, or a- <laughs> yes. Well, the, that this is one key issue about media reform in the country is that the government, because it, for the longest time, maintained a complete monopoly over broadcasting and the daily print publications... It also developed important infrastructural networks, uh, distribution, economies yeah. of scale, and things like print and Only so on. Only it can do it. Cell towers, you know, broadcasting towers, and so on. So, yeah, they have a massive control over the infrastructure, and, and which means that any kind of private interest coming in trying to set up a media outlet in the marketplace is immediately at a disadvantage. And this is one of the major concerns with all the private media in this, you know, in the media landscape. And what's that going to mean, especially if, as proposed, that the government media is going to become the public service broadcast media, um, which is the proposal right now. That also means that there are no other media that are 
even have the option of applying to be public service media. And the Democratic Voice of Burma, for a long time, I saw itself and was positioning itself and is really doing programming that's very much like public service broadcasting. And they would like to be considered for that. But there are also, you know, because there's so un- so much uncertainty in the landscape and how that will shake out, um, the public service media bill was uh, proposed and was very controversial and was removed. So that the, it still remains very unclear about exactly what's going to happen to state-run media, how it will be transformed, and in to what degree the infrastructural control will be privatized and made available to other folks or not. We don't know yet. So still lots of things to sort of see what happens in terms of shaking out, you know, the developments in the next couple of years. So, so Lisa, where can we see some of, uh, some of this uh, upcoming, uh, this, this current and upcoming research? Uh, what's uh, give us uh, anything to plug? <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, uh, um, myself and two co-editors have been working on an edited volume called Myanmar Media in Transition, which we are about to send to publishers, and you will be hey. seeing it soon in the next, hopefully, well, within a, within a year uh, for sure. Myanmar Media in Transition? Mm-hmm. That's right. But also, you know, there is some, you know, one of the things about the media landscape in the country is because the uh, country was isolated for so long, there really hasn't been a lot of independent scholarship on the sector. Uh Um, And so really the the scholarship around the media landscape is really developing now. There are lots of uh, graduate students who are working on the area and so on. Basic groundwork to be done, yeah. Yeah, and there's so much work to be done in the the area. So there's been some of us who've been publishing for a while, but very few, and quite a number of the folks have been publishing are journalists rather than academics. And so it's an exciting new place, new field in terms of uh, looking, you know, it's an exciting new case study. Myanmar is an exciting case study um, in terms of looking at the transition um, that's happening there and the particular confluence of changes in international journalism and rapid rise in, in social media use in the country that make it very unique as a case study of media uh, sort of in transitional period. So it's exciting. Yeah, and we look uh, we look forward to seeing it. Um, Lisa Bruton, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks so much for inviting me. And we'll see you back soon. Great, thank you. Crossroads would like to thank Joe Kinsler for today's music and the Jimmy for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。